When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I met Cody Keenan when he was a young volunteer speechwriter in the Obama for President campaign in 2007. I worked with him in the White House, watched him grow to become the president's chief speechwriter, a collaborator on some of the most meaningful and impactful speeches of our time. I sat down with Cody the other day on his final day in the White House to talk about his journey. Cody Keenan, good to be with you on your last day in the White House. The, the walls are bare. The staff is gone. But the last event at the White House uh, was the Cubs celebration. And I noticed that the remarks were about three times as long as the normal sports. I, mean, I, I suspect that has something to do with you. Yeah, I'm not sorry. <laughs> that they were longer. It was, I mean, if you'd, I was born in Wrigleyville, uh, literally. And, uh, you know, if you told me eight years ago. In a saloon? It, that wouldn't surprise me, be. by the way. My dad's sketchy about the details. <laughs> uh, but I did, the first bar I ever went into was Murphy's Bleachers, and I was six months old. Mm-hmm. After my first game, in which I was six months old, my dad took me in a backpack and, uh, you know, like a baby backpack. Yes. And um, sat in the bleachers and told the women behind me, you know, if you take care of my kid for the next three hours, just pay attention to him. Let me know if he's crying <laughs> or whatever. So one of the things about that speech is I was just channeling. Your dad was there, too. My, I made sure to bring my dad and my mom. Uh, and they got to meet players, and they were so excited. You know, they were wearing their hats. And I, I channeled my own fandom, but I think everybody's fandom into those remarks. I tried to speak to, you know, he had, he had a paragraph in there about how it's, to be a Cub fan is a generational thing. You know, you talk about... What go into your first game with your dad, or like the first lady crawling into her dad's lap to watch on WGN, yes. and you know all the wonderful, heartbreaking stories this season of people going to their parents' grave sites. But yeah, if you told me eight years ago, you know that when we were thirty points down in Iowa, uh, that we were going to pull this thing off, and you know pass universal health care and marriage equality and wax Bin Laden, I might have believed you. But if you told me my last speech in the White House would be for the World Series champion Chicago Cubs, I would have said Not you're a nuts. chance. Yeah, no, anyway. I, I, I think we all agree. You know, Theo, uh, I saw Theo Epstein, uh, who is the president of the Cubs. Um, I went to talk to him this spring because I was working on a piece about the Cubs for The New Yorker. And um, he talked about the thing that motivated him was that ride in when he was with the Red Sox and they broke their – 86-year drought and driving in from the airport past a cemetery and there were Red Sox banners and caps on gravestones mm-hmm. because family members went uh, to uh, to place them there uh, 
because it would have meant so much to their family members. And we saw that whole thing replicated again in Chicago. Yeah, there was a story about a guy who drove 800 miles just to listen to the game on the radio at his father's grave. Unbelievable. Amazing. And I remember walking out of Game 5. And people were just starting to leave their chalk messages on the wall. And over the next few days, you saw that explode. And they were all love letters to, you know, departed fans saying, yeah. we did it. It happened. And it, uh, that got me a little choked up. And I worked that into the remarks. Yeah. They were great remarks. I excuse you for making them long because every word was great. We know as great as I he, could have listened to him for an hour and a half on that one. He excused it too. I mean, that was a special event. For, as he said, you know, the first lady has never come to a sports event. Yeah. She came to this one. She talked to the team. She talked about her dad. And I saw some of these big guys getting a little misty. You know, they took photos with every player. And I think the whole thing stretched out for like two or three hours yeah. in total, which we just never do. Yeah. And their gifts were special too. I mean, they pulled the 44 out of the scoreboard for him. Which will be a problem if Rizzo has to, ever has to go in and pitch. but Yeah, maybe that will find its way into the – yeah, that's true. If Well, listen, there are bigger problems if Rizzo has to go yeah. in and pitch. But. Well, look, some of the Cubs front office guys asked me, they said, this is a national historic site, Wrigley, in the scoreboard. I don't know if we're allowed to do this or not. I said, I think he'll probably write you a note. <laughs> <laughs> we see. I think there is a final round of pardons and commutations coming out today, so maybe they're among them. Perfect. You actually spent the early part of your life in Chicago and Evanston mm-hmm. – uh, what, what did your folks do? They were both in advertising at rival agencies, and this was, you know, the 80s. Was the Sounds big, like a sitcom. Yeah, the, the, it was the big heyday of, you know, beer and cars and cigarettes. And, and the Tribune actually used to run a page kind of covering uh, the, ad, the ad biz in Chicago, and they would pit my parents against each other. You know, Marilyn Keenan stole Corona <laughs> from her husband's firm. He stole Brock's candy from hers. Um, but it was a great place to grow up. Yeah, because, you know, you left there – uh, how old were you when they moved? We gradually moved from uh, Lakeview to Evanston to Wilmette. And, you know, I went to Central Elementary, Wilmette Junior High, and then we moved to the East Coast for my dad's work. Um, and I made a beeline right back to go to Northwestern right after high school. Yeah, because your identification is very much uh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. What, what is about Chicago that, uh, that, you, uh, that, that, uh, that attracts you? It's the one place where when I get off the plane, I feel like I'm home, you know. And it's got my wife's a New Yorker, and you know I've always told her Chicago has all the good of New York without the bad. Uh, it's friendly, you know. It's diverse. It's interesting. It's, there's no better sports fans in America than in Chicago, you know. You you met you made some of the series games, right? Or I made all three of them in Chicago. Games three, four, and five. I took yeah. my dad to game three. A friend took me to game four, and I took my sister to game five. When you uh, came back, you went to Northwestern, and you enrolled as a pre-med student. Yes. What was that all about? So I had, I, uh, had a knee reconstruction in high school after a football injury, and I was fascinated by the whole thing. And I shadowed my orthopedic surgeon a couple times doing surgeries in Danbury Hospital in Connecticut. Uh, and I, I found it amazing. And I, you know, I loved AP Biology. That was my favorite course. But they're smart in college. They try to weed you out. You know, they do. You have to do a year of chemistry and then a year of organic chemistry before you can get to the good stuff. And it worked with me. I, they weeded me out pretty fast. And uh, then uh, you uh, Chinese international relations. I, I I just drifted around in college because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, Chinese irreparably harmed my GPA, <laughs> uh, and I can't remember any of it to this day. Um, dabbled in international relations. I actually withdrew from Northwestern for a while and moved to Spain to work for America Online for nine months. Um, and it, ultimately, it was, it was my friends who said, 
Um, you know, this is what you're passionate about. You talk about politics all the time. You know, the West Wing. Why is that? Did you guys talk about it when you were a kid? Was, it, was that a thing in your home? It was a big thing in my home. My, my parents, my mom was, you know, a hardcore liberal Democrat, you know, worked for, campaigned for McGovern in Indiana, campaigned for Ted Kennedy. Uh, she always was. Uh, my dad was a Reagan Republican. Hmm. Boy, this really is a sitcom. Yeah, and they scrapped, you know, a lot about politics. And that's how I first got interested in, like, you know, why are they so riled up about all this? Um, I think, you know, my earliest political memories were when I really started paying attention was probably around Bill Clinton's impeachment. You know, and I remember thinking, this is weird, you know. Uh, And I started getting, you know, kind of politically educated and paying attention. And, you know, we'd have debates in the fraternity house on campus um, and it was right when the West Wing TV show started, you know, and that was kind of the hook for me. Really, uh, you know, I run into, even today at the University of Chicago at the Institute of Politics, you know, they had West Wing night. Kids still I'm so heartened by that. that. And, you know, I'll talk to the intern class here a couple times a year, and I always ask for a show of hands as who watches the West Wing. And these are kids who are, you know, they're 20. And the West Wing started almost, what, 20 years ago. Yes. Um, so I love that they watch it. Yeah, you know, it'll be interesting. I mean, my, one of my big concerns is idealism and what's the future for idealism. Mm-hmm. And that was a very idealistic show. Will there be – I wonder if there'll be new uh, – you know, that was sort of based off of the Clinton White House. I wonder right. if there'll be shows based off of the Obama experience in the future when people are hungry for something. I hope so. And my understanding of that show is – could it was, be your next thing, man. You might maybe – there be. may be a script in there. My understanding is that show, it was originally supposed to be about the staff and Martin Sheen was going to be kind of a side character. And, you know, he ultimately became the main character. But I think a show focused on staff would be really interesting. You uh, – uh, when, when did you realize that writing was something that you were good at, enjoyed – I, I, it always came. Were your folks copywriters or were they account execs or? They were, they were in charge of creative. Oh, they were. Um, so they were sort of, they were in that space as well. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I kind of, I was raised to sell things sort of, you know, and, and a lot of politics is you're selling a candidate. Um, writing always came easy to me, probably because I was a voracious reader. I mean, nonstop as a kid. It's all I did. Um, you know, the Wilmette Public Library had a contest every summer to see which kids could read the most books, and I was always determined to win it. Huh. And I had some credible um, English teachers in high school who, you know, I, remember the, I still remember the first C I ever got in my life. It was Ms. Wassell uh, in Connecticut, Ridgefield High School. And, you know, it was the first paper I'd ever got back that was just torn to shreds with black ink. And I went to her afterwards, and I said, you know, there must be some mistake here. I've never gotten a C before. And to her credit, she patiently walked me through everything I'd been doing wrong all these years, and no one had taught me otherwise. And she made me a much better writer. Um, it's not something I focused on in college either. You're still in touch with her? Yeah. Yeah. I, I sent her a note a couple years back. Um, I think she's retired now. But uh, my well, second Mrs. grade— Wessel, if you're listening, nice work. Yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah. My second grade teacher just found me on Facebook the other day, which was really fun. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, you're, yeah, you— you were the uh, star of the CNN thing about the final days of the uh, of the uh, Obama administration. So I'm sure a lot of old teachers who thought you would amount to nothing now will claim credit for you. Probably wondering what was happening with my facial hair in every different scene. <laughs> <laughs> you um, you went, you started in politics in earnest in the mailroom for Ted Kennedy. Did you did you seek out Ted Kennedy? 
I didn't. When I first moved to Washington, you know, again, it was my fraternity brothers who were like, just go. I was adrift for six months after college. You know, I went back to my first Northwestern homecoming jobless. And that's embarrassing. Um, and it was one of my fraternity brothers who said, dude, move to D.C. This is what you like. We have a friend there, Nick. Crash on his couch till you find a job. And I got here, and Nick was the only person I knew. Uh, he was one of the groomsmen at my wedding this year. He's one of my best friends. And he was doing Teach for America. So I had nobody in the political sphere. So I was just, you know, Googling for jobs, going to as many networking things as I could. And you realize quickly it's very difficult to break in. You know, once you're in the door, it's easy to find jobs. But and so I'd, I'd set my sights a little too high. I figured I'd seen every episode of The West Wing. I went to Northwestern. How hard <laughs> could this be? You know, I was applying for legislative aid jobs. And then once I realized I couldn't get those staff assistant jobs, once I realized I couldn't get those, I stumbled upon a posting for an internship in Ted Kennedy's office. And uh, so I, call, I called, and I knew who he was, obviously. So I called the chief of staff, because, of course, that's the way things work in Washington. I just Googled the phone number and asked for Mary Beth Cahill. And <clears throat> fortunately, there was an intern manning the phones that day, so I managed to get through to her assistant, who promptly transferred me to the intern coordinator. And she hired me over the phone without asking about anything. And I figured, well, that's strange, but okay, yeah, I can start Monday. Ultimately, that is strange. Yeah. Well, she eventually told me it was 5 p.m. on a Friday, and she just wanted to go home. <laughs> and then I also found out when I got I, there. I thought, I thought being named Keenan was helpful, too, yeah. just the old Irish connection. Sure. But I also found out when I got there, he had 100 interns. So what's one more, you know? And uh, what was – how did you – were you you ultimately uh, became a staff assistant on the HELP Committee, on the Health mm-hmm. and Education and Labor Committee there. Uh, how did you – Work your way. Were you particularly talented at delivering mail, and people saw something in you, or how did that all? Well, I, I worked hard, and I had the benefit of being one of the few interns who had already graduated from college, so my competition was slim. Um, and you know, he was a he was a big fan of promoting upwards in the office. So my first job was staff assistant in his personal office, answering phones and doing tours and walking the dogs. Uh, I was hired to do that after my internship, and did that for I think about nine months. And then Michael Myers, who was the um, chief of staff of the help committee for Kennedy, uh, asked if I wanted to be his assistant. I said yes, and that's when I first got into policy work. Yeah, I, I know, I know him. He's, he was with Kennedy for he was an extraordinary years. mentor. He was with Kennedy for decades, and he was the one who kind of he was he, well, he was the one who first gave me a shot on a speech because Kennedy didn't have a speechwriter. You know, if if you just kind of wrote speeches for your own issue area, and then his legislative director, a guy named Kerry Parker, who'd been with him since the '60s edited everything also a good writer yeah uh and he was he was kind of a ghost he never left his office even during evacuations you know <laughs> he just stayed He was gonna go down with the ship but that was my first shot because michael didn't have time to write a speech and he asked me if i could write and i said yes you know and i stayed huh. up stayed up all night long and my first speech was a floor speech for kennedy attacking uh the bush administration's record on transparency and it's a terrible speech in retrospect i still have it but uh that was but he shot. gave it as written. Yeah. But, you know, it's Ted Kennedy, so he'll also ad-lib for about 20 minutes and <laughs> go on a tirade and then ask the chair for more time. Did you uh, – what, what was your feeling when you heard him reading your speech? I, it, it, there was nothing like it. I mean, watching somebody read something that I'd written was exhilarating, and I wanted more. You know, so they gave me a shot at a few more, and I think – I think I only wrote maybe four or five speeches for Kennedy. Did you get to know him at all? I did. And he was – I've been very fortunate. I've had two bosses in politics, Ted Kennedy and Barack Obama. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a good deal right there. And they share a lot of similarities. They're very warm, 
you know, they're demanding, uh, but they're wonderful to their staff, you know, whether it's thank you notes or visits to the office or whatever. I mean, they just couldn't be nicer, better, more generous people. Kennedy, of course, was a, a real mentor uh, to Obama. Did he tell, uh, has, a, uh, has the president ever told you the story about there was some vote on some bill on St. Patrick's Day? Mm-hmm. You've heard that story mm-hmm. where uh, Kennedy asked for his vote and he said, I'll give you my vote, but I don't, but I'm telling you, I don't know how you're going to pass this bill. And they stood on the floor and the, he got the 60 votes, and Obama looked at him with wonderment and said, how'd you pull that off? And Kennedy patted him on the shoulder and said, luck of the Irish. Luck of the Irish. Yeah. yeah. I have a funny story about um, one of my first speeches for Kennedy was for the RFK Human Rights Awards, the year Katrina happened. And uh-huh. it was the first time it was ever awarded to an American. And so I, I wrote what I thought was a nice speech. And um, then, you know, this young Senator Barack Obama got up afterwards and gave a far better speech. And I was standing in the back wall of the room watching this whole thing. And, you know, later on when I first, not to skip too far ahead, but when I first talked to John Favreau, he told me he was in the back of the same room, you know, with the same feelings about that speech because he was still new at it in yeah, 2005. He was, he was 23 years old and he was the speechwriter for Barack Obama. I was 24 and I was doing one for Ted Kennedy. And we were probably standing next to each other and didn't know it. What, what, uh, what was it about Kennedy that attracted you? He was a singular figure up yeah, there. Yeah, it was, it was his – you know, I'll, I'll fully admit in the beginning it was the name and the, uh, and the prestige he held because I didn't know yet what was so important about politics. I mean I came in, you know, like I said, a West Wing fan, and that's what I pictured everything was. And you learn quickly it's nothing like that. It is not sexy walk and talks. You don't learn or you don't solve the world's problems in an hour. What I learned, the most important lesson... With ads. Yeah, with ads. The most important thing I learned was in Kennedy's mailroom, and it was opening the mail and reading the mail and seeing how important public service and politics were to people's lives. I mean, this is these are people ask, where are my veterans' benefits? I, I'm crushed under student loans. I need health care. And you're like, oh, my God, this is not like TV. This matters deeply to a lot of people. And Ted Kennedy was a master of constituent work. I mean, his staff in Boston... Uh, handling the constituent work. It was it was people first to get this done. No waiting. You know, and every time we'd send a memo to Senator Kennedy, it would come back with how many people will this help? How quickly? That's all he cared about. And that changed my entire outlook on public service, you know, and why I wanted to stick with it. He also was uh you know, in a sense people will look at his passing as a line of demarcation because he was obviously a liberal, the liberal lion of the Senate and had enormously positive relationships across the aisle. Mm-hmm. At, you, you remember his memorial service at which mm-hmm. John McCain and Orrin Hatch spoke. And there, there are very few figures, maybe none, uh, who have that kind of relationship. It seemed, Those kind of relationships, I should say. It seemed like an era died in the Senate with him. You know, I mean, Orrin Hatch has said, literally, he got into politics to defeat Ted Kennedy. He ran against Ted Kennedy in Utah, even though Ted Kennedy's from Massachusetts. And they became some of the closest of friends. And they passed the Children's Health Insurance Program together. I mean, that was a trait Kennedy had where he was willing to get half a loaf by working with Republicans and incremental change. And that's, you know, you see a lot of that in the president, too, in the way he works. There just aren't as many willing Republican partners these days. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Joe Biden tells the story of when he was ill uh, in, in the late 80s. He had, he had 
to drop out of a presidential race, and then he had a brain aneurysm and was depressed and uh, was at his house in Delaware. And the doorbell rings, and there's Ted Kennedy with uh, a gym bag. And Biden said, what are you doing here? And Kennedy said, I just want to have a swim. And uh, came in, and they sat by the pool, and he gave uh, Biden a big pep talk. Uh, And there are all kinds of stories like that, just of acts of kindness. Infinite. And you heard it all around, said the senator's memorial service. I mean, I, I... you know, because this was a guy who knew and had endured the most public of tragedies with his brothers, uh, and you know he had his he broke his back in '64 and was out for a while, and, and you know with his kids, and so he had a big heart and a tenderness to him, and he was always the first to call. That was one thing yeah. I heard over and over and over. And I, I remember he had there was a letter hanging in his private study from Trent Lott. I think I can probably tell this story now, and I don't remember what the main thrust of it was, but the end of it was if the world only knew your kindness. You know, and this was somebody who was his sworn enemy across the aisle. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lesson in that, which is you can fight fiercely and disagree and still appreciate each other as human beings. It's something that it'd be great to recapture. Recapture, yeah. He, uh, we shared a birthday, Ted Kennedy and I, and after we got to and George know Washington. Each other, and George Washington, Julius Irving, by the way. And, uh, he he would call, you know, um, I was at a rally for Obama in 2008, I guess, and um, uh, some came, one came running through the crowd with a cell phone saying, uh, can can you talk to Senator Kennedy? And calling to wish me a happy birthday. Oh, yeah, David. Oh, good, good. <laughs> but uh, really, really a remarkable guy. And yet, you left. I left. Why? You went. You went to graduate school. Yeah, he, you know, my boss, Michael, gave me the opportunity in 2006 to become a legislative aide and actually start working on legislation. My first portfolio was mental health and disability policy, which is something I became passionate about. And But I quickly realized I was in way over my head. You know, I'd sit down with legislative counsel and staffers from other offices, and they would run circles around me. And I went back to my boss and said, I'm doing the senator a disservice. You know, I appreciate it. But I, I was the only legislative aide without some sort of advanced degree. I mean, and I don't just mean like a law degree. We had bioethicists on staff, yeah. people with PhDs in molecular genetics. I mean, he had the best staff on the Hill. And I wasn't ready for that. Uh, so I went to the Kennedy School to try to get, you know, kind of a quantitative background that I hadn't gotten in college. And I told the senator I would come back um, when I was done if he'd have me. And you, But you didn't. I didn't. Lightning First of all, did, you get, did it help? Did that? It did. It did. It, it, you know, I... I because I was more focused than I was in college on mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. And the first year I focused hard on policy and quantitative um, analysis. And then lightning struck halfway through. Stephanie Cutter, who was also one of my mentors in Senator Kennedy's office, she was his communications director. She came up to lecture one night and I said, let's go get a beer. And we went and got a beer and she asked me what I was going to do in my summer break. And I told her I didn't know yet. And she said, well, you should go write for this guy, Obama. And I said, well, that's a nice thought, but... I've only written a few speeches, and how, why would he hire me? Um, and she said, well, I know his speechwriter, John Favreau. I worked with him on the Kerry campaign. Did you uh, – well, let's take a short break, and then we'll be back with Cody Keenan. You said you asked why would he hire me. Did you know why you wanted to work for him? I did. I, I was actually on the floor in Boston in 2004 when he gave his convention speech because I was up there working for Kennedy, and it was electric. You know, this was someone who was talking about politics in a way 
that I saw politics but hadn't been able to put into words, you know. And, you know, it helped that he was from my hometown, but I believed that. And I had gotten a little jaded working in the Senate, you know, even though we were able to do things. When you see the way it really works, you're like, is this really what I want to do? And he made it seem as noble and hopeful as I hoped it was when I first came to Washington. So you took a job as an intern. Yeah. In the uh, back not quite in the mail room, but not quite. I was in, but in the uh, you know kind of the open pool in the comms shop. And when I showed up, it was just John Favreau and Adam Frankel. Yeah, another great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys were all young. Mm-hmm. I was twenty six. Yeah, and Favs was twenty five. Having spent time uh, in the Senate, how familiar were you with um, Obama's? Uh, phraseology, language, how he approached speeches. I wasn't, but, uh, you know, before the internship, I read both of his books. Um, I drove from Boston to Chicago and listened to both of them on audio version just to get his voice down. And I stayed up all night. You won a Grammy for one of those things. He's told me. We got to get the EGOT. Um, (laughs) And I stayed up all night before my first day watching his speeches on YouTube to try to get it down. But I, you know, I still think it probably took me two, three years to really get his voice down in a way that was more than just mimicry. What, what, were, what, what kind of speech writing did you do in, during those years? I, I recall some of it because um, you, you had a kind of, you had a more muscular sort of crowd-pleasing style, which was useful uh, in a campaign. That probably came from my parents' work, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But do you remember speeches you wrote during the campaign? Yeah, and it, you know, my my stuff was the the lowest of the low stuff. I mean, it'd be talking points for backyard barbecues. It would be emails that went out, and we had a running joke that you know you put out a statement, just hundreds and hundreds of statements when you're running for office, celebrating you know National Trout Fisherman Day or you know National uh, Bike Accident Survivor Day, whatever. And we'd always end them all with, on this day of all days, let us remember trout fishers or something. And that was, <laughs> that was my job, to do all those <laughs> statements and videos and the shorter stuff. Um, I didn't write a lot of big ones on the campaign. And I wasn't ready for it yet. You know? And Favs was always a very patient mentor and you know, would, would pull back on the assignments until I was ready. Yeah. I don't think people, you know, we, we have, I, some, if you were there, you experienced it. I don't think people... It's hard to describe the environment of that campaign, but that the campaign was uh, that was sort of a once in a I've been oh, in 150 man. of them. That was a once in a lifetime experience. It was extraordinary. Funny enough, it was in my dad used to work in that office building, 233 North Michigan. Yeah. So he was really excited that that's where it was, but we had this massive floor on the 11th floor, wide open spaces, you know, very few offices. And you watched it grow every day, more and more people coming in. You know, and the place was electric with young people. And one of the amazing things about that campaign is that you guys trusted young people to yeah. do things that we didn't always have experience well, doing. Well, you know that when we got together to talk about whether he would run uh, for president or should run for president, there were there were like eight people in the room, and that was, you know, that was basically the Obama for America organization right there we and the whole bet was that there were a bunch of well-motivated young people out there who might take up the cause Mm -hmm. and uh you know uh if we didn't believe that we couldn't have done it i mean we knew there were cody keenan's out keenan's out there even though we didn't know you yeah and the people in headquarters get too much credit i you know i before i in, in, in between 
phases of my internship, I went to Ames, Iowa for a few weeks right before the caucus and volunteered in that shop and did whatever they asked. And all of these offices are run by people that were even younger than me at 26 who would put in 20 hour days and, you know, just dominate precincts. I mean, run circles around the other campaigns and lived and breathed all their work and, you know, are still good friends to this day. I mean, it was extraordinary. Yeah. And kind of changed the world. Yeah. I mean, because if if Iowa hadn't happened, uh, none of this would have happened. I was responsible for Ames 1-2, and we dominated our caucus night. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk about coming to the White House and what that was like. Which, it, it's, it's an entirely different experience than a campaign. I think the camaraderie was there. But the situation was much different mm-hmm. and grave and mean and and portentous scary. and scary. Yeah, scary. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, and the, and the culture changes immediately too. We were kind of fun and freewheeling in Chicago, and you get here, and you're in the White House. And so you know, the first thing you do is you what care. does that mean to you when you walked in the first day? Uh, how is this happening? You know, and I, I remember my friends sent all sorts of nice notes the morning of and the night before, and my parents and. They've actually been forwarding those notes to me today on the way out. Um, you know, I'd never been here before. And you walk in, and you're just like, wow. Yeah. Um, but that fades fast when you're, you know, not only trying to find a computer, but a bathroom, lunch, and fix the global economy, you know, before sundown. Yeah, I think I th- that's another thing that's hard to convey, but uh, because especially now, that we're we're well past that crisis, but the sense when uh, we walked in here that uh, the, the 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 economy could could utterly collapse, that we could be faced with another second great depression with you know bread lines and mm-hmm. uh, you know just abject uh, fear out there. I mean, there was abject fear out there. But, yeah, um, I remember vividly one night, you know, Brian Deese walking around, his face white as a sheet, and I said, "What's wrong with you?" And he said, "I think he's GM's working go. for the the, the uh, NE, NEC." Yeah, then, this this memory was from the campaign, but he was like, "I think GM's going to go bankrupt tomorrow," and I was like, "Why?" You know, it's just, it was just one thing after another all the time. But even as we were trying to, you know, with speeches explain these incredibly complicated programs, you know, for lending to get lending going again and for homeowners and whatnot. And these were also things that nobody wanted to do. You know, the American people didn't want us to help the banks. And we didn't really want to do that either, but we had to. So we're trying to figure out how to explain all that and deal with our own personal situations. I mean, coming in, my, my sister had been laid off along with two thirds of her company, you know, the month before the election, you're worried about your parents' retirement. You know, you're, you're worried about other family members and what's going to happen to them even as you're trying to turn in speeches on time. And how, how much does that, uh, that sort of personal experience uh, flow into the writing? All of it. I channeled all of it. Because you've got to figure, you know, whoever the president's talking to has those same concerns and fears, and they might have lost their job. They might be on the brink of losing their home. And you've got to connect with them rather than just rattle off a list of bullet points on some policy or program. I have to take a. Uh, I have to take the, this opportunity to say what you know, which is that we had this really cool thing uh, in the two years that I was here. I, w- the greatest pleasure I had was that I got to work with you guys 
and um, would come in and see you, my wordsmiths. It was the best meeting of the day. And I hope you noticed in the CNN documentary. I did. You said, said hello, hello wordsmiths. wordsmiths. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I, I was glad to see you kept the tradition uh, alive. But those were um, really creative sessions, fun sessions. And, you know, for an old guy like me to look around the room and see, I don't, you've, maybe Rhodes was 30. I don't know. But uh, everybody was in their 20s. We were kids. Yeah. And how – talk about the evolution of, of your writing and your col- uh, collaboration with the president. John Favreau obviously was here as chief speechwriter for, what, five years? He was here for the first four years, for the first term and two months. Yeah. And, and then you took over. But you were a pretty junior writer when we started. Mm-hmm. Talk about – your evolution as a writer and what you learned uh, about your, yourself as a writer and what you learned from uh, from others and particularly the president. Yeah, my, my first speeches here were the quote-unquote easy ones, you know, uh, town halls, yeah. ceremonial stuff. Um, you know, the first meaningful speech I was really proud of was Memorial Day, the first Memorial Day. Um, you know, I'd, like pitching high-speed rail in the Recovery Act to people, things like that. The first kind of speech um, that I knew would get a national audience was Tucson. And the only reason I got a shot at that was because Favs was working on the State of the Union Address, which was a couple weeks later. This was when uh, Gabrielle Giffords was shot, Mm -hmm. the memorial service there. But I want to talk to you about that and this whole issue of of guns, which Mm -hmm. has run through. You've written too many, many, many speeches uh, on that issue. You also... uh, Worked on the eulogy for Ted Kennedy in 2009. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Favs was a lead writer on that. That's gotten misconstrued over the years. But um, I did get, you know, I talked to staff and family, all the Kennedy staff and family, and got all the great anecdotes and stories for it. But Favs poured himself into that one, too. I just was wondering emotionally how that that felt to you, felt for you, I guess. I was, it was so sad. It was just crushing, you know. I mean... I you know I, I I cried the day I found out he was diagnosed with brain cancer, um, so we all we all knew that day would come at least, and so he had, you know, probably about a year for everybody to get to say their goodbyes, um, you know, and I went to the Capitol steps to join thousands of former Kennedy staffers to say goodbye to him, you know, as as the funeral cortege went by, um, but that was really sad, but but it was also you know we got to work in all those great stories that we were just talking about and bring smiles to people's faces and and make. And keep his spirit alive yeah. in that room, which was very, very palpable. You know, a year, uh, eight years ago, uh, tomorrow, um, he was there uh, at the inauguration, and he could not have been happier having supported Obama under difficult circumstances because he kind of broke with mm-hmm. Washington, uh, many in Washington on that. and supporting this young guy was very very significant endorsement and he felt an almost filial pride in uh barack obama and i remember him coming up to me uh right after the ceremony he had a big fedora on and a light blue scarf yeah and he said uh great day isn't it and with you know that sort of great spirit of his and then we went into this luncheon and he had a seizure in the in in the luncheon and it it was a really sobering thing Mm -hmm. um and he was sitting with the biden family and he called the vice president from the hospital 
because he was worried that he had upset his grandchildren. And I thought, what an incredible gesture to be thinking about that. He was always others first. Yeah. You know, I think throughout his entire adult life, I think he was acutely aware of his own mortality. Well, for good reason. Yeah, for good reason. But then when you know that you are living with something like brain cancer, to get to that day and see, you know, I think he saw a lot of his brothers in President Obama. Mm -hmm. Um, And to get to kind of see, you know, that torch getting passed. Well, when we talked about the 2008 campaign, I said to... uh, I said to Senator Obama that uh, we needed to recapture the spirit of the, ni- of the 1968 Bobby Kennedy campaign, which was um, suffused with this sense of idealism and purpose and that, the, you know, we could change the world. And, uh, and I think we succeeded in that. I think Senator Kennedy uh, recognized that. But let's return to the speech, the Gabrielle Giffords yep. uh, speech in the memorial service there. There was one beautiful uh, phrase in a beautiful speech about um, the young girl who was killed uh, there. Talk about that and how that came to you. Yeah, Christina Taylor Green. I think she was nine years old, I yeah, think. something like that. Um, that was, you know, critical to any great speech is research. You know, you look for stories, statistics, anecdotes, anything to give it life. And Kyle O'Connor, who was our junior guy at the time, uh, went and found this book called Faces of Hope. And it was this book uh, with about children who were born on 9-11, 2001. And photos of them, and on each side of the photo, it had, you know, wishes for their life. And Christina Taylor Green was born on 9-11. Hmm. And then taken from us in Tucson. So... He found this book. I don't know how. That's an incredible piece of research. Unbelievable. And on each side of her photo, it said, you know, I hope you help people in need. I hope you know the words to the national anthem and sing it with your hands over your heart. And I hope you jump in rain puddles. So I was was reading this, and I think it was the morning of the speech. I still have the email. I emailed myself while I was getting ready in the morning just saying, you know, if there are rain puddles in heaven, Christina's jumping in them today, and then added that in. Yeah. I get... uh I get a little verklempt thinking about that even today, and I remember the, how that played in the in the room and to the country at that time, and it really humanized this issue of gun violence in a way that uh, um, that only children can, and stories like that can. So you've written a lot of those memorial speeches, and uh, it, it's it's callous to say. You got good at it, uh, but it must have been it must have been emotionally wrenching to 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 have that assignment again and again. They always are. I mean, that's the thing. You know, when you come in here as a speechwriter, leave aside the economic crisis, you have big visions of State of the Union addresses and commencements and you know moonshots and all sorts of great speeches. It never crosses your mind that you're going to have to write a bunch for tragedy. You know, that yeah. just that and it happened way too often. Yeah. Uh, well. The uh, I mean, you think of Reagan's great speeches, and probably as great a speech as he ever gave was his Oval Office speech when the Challenger space shuttle uh, exploded mm-hmm. and uh, killing all the slipped uh, the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a big part of being president is being in uh, responding to those moments when you need to minister to the country. Mm-hmm. Talk about working with the president on these 
speeches. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I, all of us who've worked with him uh, are familiar with the um, yellow legal pad oh, yeah. pages and small, uh, you know, uh, small hand handwritten notes um, that generally are uh, written in the middle of the night. Yeah. I mean, the president's our chief speechwriter always has been. I mean, if he had 48 hours in a People day. People say that, you know, about their boss all the time. I yeah. notice, and I'm not questioning that Donald Trump said he's written his inaugural, inaugural address. And by the time people hear this, we'll, we'll have heard the address. I don't know if it's going to be 140 characters or longer. But, uh, but, um, but the truth is there aren't that many presidents in history who uh, were great writers. And he is a writer. I mean, you know, he wrote his first book when I think he's younger than I am now. Yes. It's the way he yeah, organizes. what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's the way he organizes his thoughts, you know, on paper. And he takes care, great care with his words. He's precise with his edits. And, you know, if a speech isn't quite where it needs to be, he will get out yet that yellow legal pad and rewrite whole sections of it, you know. And our best collaborations have been when we hand drafts back and forth and gradually make them better, you know, based off each other's stuff. There always was this sense uh, that if you could get – a workable draft, a good draft in his hands. He could take it yes. and make it a great speech. Yeah, and one of the important things I've learned here is that, you know, I still kill myself to try to make that first draft as good as possible because you always want to do right by him. But I've learned along the way that it doesn't have to be perfect. It has to give him something he can work with. And then he can work magic in about a tenth the time that you did. You know, like Charleston, for example, I pulled two all-nighters on that. This was the memorial speech after the shooting in the church mm-hmm. and. In Charleston. I pulled two all-nighters on that. And then in the span of five hours, he crossed out the last two pages of the speech and rewrote them longhand, you know, in a way that was – that I couldn't reach. Uh, and it's frustrating that you can't get there. But it's also just incredibly rewarding to see that he can. Talk about um, that particular speech. That will be uh, one of the most memorable speeches, not just because of what he said but because of what he sang. Right. It uh, was – I mean this – you know, this was maybe the 20th mass shooting we've had to react to in one way or another and i was running out of things to say you know now there's an added horrible racial component to to this one but you know we were sitting around in the oval office on the monday he was going to give that speech and what had changed um was that all the family members of the victims forgave the killer and that was extraordinary and the president said that's what i want to talk about you know the idea of grace and he gave me some ideas and i went and put it down but you know, he's he's also more of a theologian than people understand. I mean, that was a deeply religious speech to talk about the concept of unearned grace. That's the free and benevolent gift from God and how we can apply that in our own lives to understanding each other, to, you know, healing racial divides, to doing something about guns. And, you know, we had the lyrics to Amazing Grace in there. That morning on the helicopter, he said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing that second one. And I said, okay, you know, go for it. And you could tell, you know, I, I flew to Charleston with him, but he still had, he was still writing and making edits on the plane. So I stayed behind on the plane to finish up the speech and watched it on television on the plane. And you could tell before he even started speaking. I mean, this was a black church. The, the organ was playing, you know. I think a dude started playing the guitar while the president was <laughs> speaking. And, you know, so there, he's absolutely going to sing this. And there was that extra little drama where he paused and then did it. And what a moment. Yeah. We're going to take another short break. We'll be back with Cody Keenan.
You mentioned uh, that he was still working on the on the Charleston speech on the way to Charleston. Um, I was here when uh, he got the Nobel Prize, and um, you weren't along on that trip, but yeah. uh, Ben Rhodes and John Favreau were working on that speech with him, and it it, it it may go down in history as one of his best speeches. It's extraordinary. But it was uh, what people don't appreciate is that it was largely written uh, in the on air. the plane yeah. from Washington to Oslo, uh, and uh, didn't have an ending when uh, when we landed in Oslo a few hours uh, before the ceremony. Um, there's a lot of that, uh, and. A lot of life on the high wire in the speech writing business with Barack Obama. Always. I mean, time is the enemy in both ways. One in that there never seems to be enough of it. But if you also have a pretty good draft a day before, then you have too much time. Because he'll still go through as often as he can right up to the wire, you know, just tweaking, perfecting. And eventually you want to say, hey, we're good here. You know, let's just load this into the prompter and take a little time off. Um, the other thing the Nobel speech makes me think of is, you know, he will never let a speech opportunity go to waste. You know, he could have just phoned in the Nobel speech and said, thank you for this. Instead, he decided to embrace the complexity of it and the paradox of someone who was prosecuting two wars and, you know, drone operations receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. So he decided to give a speech defending the necessity of just war. Yeah. Receiving a peace prize. And what a remarkable thing. He, um, I mean, you you'll remember that. It wasn't entirely welcome news that he had won the Nobel Prize because we knew that people would say, well, why did he win this prize? It was clearly for what he had done in the campaign as much as anything. It was aspirational. And he was the first person to acknowledge that too. He said, I I haven't earned this yet. Yeah. So uh, – but then the the – as you say, the complexity of this coming just as he was contemplating sending more troops to Afghanistan Mm -hmm. was – you know, created this extraordinary challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, as you said, you know, he uses these speeches not just – I mean, uh, the, the difference between an Obama speech and speeches that a lot of other people in politics make is um, often political speeches are a bunch of lines sort of cobbled together by connective tissue, but they're not an argument. Mm-hmm. They're not a reasoned argument. He He – makes arguments in his speeches. He has he develops a case in his speeches in a way that I don't think uh you know any president has done in quite the same way probably since Lincoln. That's what makes him so challenging to write and so exhilarating to write is to figure out that argument, the best way to make it. I mean, you know, you look at his eulogies too, he's never content just to pay tribute to the victims, but rather instruct us to, you know, carry on to do to take up our responsibility to do something in their behalf you know in their place because they can't do it anymore you what how has this all changed you well, that's a great question no one's asked me that yet um that's what the axe files is yeah all about. man the the you know the, the the first easy answer is i met my wife here that was a pretty significant change that's pretty big yeah that's yeah. big that was an even better day than the cubs coming brave woman yeah she is um you know i I like to think I've become a little bit more like him in the sense that I try to think in a longer time horizon and not get swept up in, you know, the day-to-day, minute-to-minute of politics in the Twitter sphere. 
Um, I love, by the way, in his final press conference when he said he tells his daughters, uh, "The end, it's not the end of the world until it's the end of the world," that's right. which is profound. Yeah, because we, you know, in this town, every day is election day. Everything's a major crisis. Everything is the defining event of our times. And the truth is, very few things are. Yeah, someone made a list once of Obama's 19 Katrinas. <laughs> yes. You know, and nobody remembers what they are now. Right. But he has, an, he has a, I think, one of his most salient qualities is that ability to stay calm amid all of that and think long and not get ruffled by the, the, the kerfluffles of the moment, which is a great quality in a president because it's so easy to be distracted. Yes. Yeah, I think we see that in our next president. But he, he, you know, and at the core of that is his eternal optimism. He is a fundamentally optimistic person, you know. That's the whole point of the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This country gets better and better. And he's had, you know, some pretty remarkable arguments with thinkers about that. Um, you know, like ta Coates has a, a more pessimistic vision of race in America than Barack Obama does. Whereas the president looks at it as, you know, for all the challenges that remain, you know, th- look, look at how far we've come. You know, and start there. Yeah. Well, I I remember the first day. We're sitting here on the last day of the Obama administration in the White House. I remember the first day in the White House going to my first Oval Office meeting, and the president was sitting in his chair, uh, and behind him and on the wall was a portrait of George Washington. And it was stunning to me to think that there were only 44 people who, sat in that, who have sat in that chair. The first one was... I. I'm a little shaky on my history, but I suspect probably had s- s- slaves or certainly came from a slaveholding culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, here was Barack Hussein Obama. And it said a lot about the country. So it's hard not to be an optimist Yeah, and his having, daughters have, having been part of that history. His daughters have the blood of slaves running through their veins, you know, and they live in the house. It's remarkable. Yeah. You're staying with them. I am. I know we had talked about various career options. Uh, what uh, caused you to, uh, to to stay? Well, he's smart. He knows how to go right at someone's weakness. You know, So he called me into the office a few months ago and said, so I understand you're not sure what you want to do yet. And I wasn't because I, how do you find something with as, as big a sense of purpose as this? You know, that terrified me. Um, and he said, well, tell you what, you know, I'm still going to have to give speeches and write a book. You want to keep the band together? And I said, yeah, man, of course I do. He said, we'll do it for a couple of years, and then you can figure out what you want to do. Uh-huh. And uh, he, he, he was wise. He exploited my weakness and went right at it. And um, that's a massive project, that book. I think there'll be more, not to get you all um, anxious about it, but there'll probably be more. Uh, they'll they'll not be a more eagerly awaited presidential bio, uh, autobiography than the one that he'll write because uh, because of who he is and because of the fact that people have high expectations for him as a writer. Uh, Unfortunately, how, because of who he is, he's going to do a lot of it himself, right? You know, and I, I I can't wait to see what he comes up with. The question is, how do you organize a uh, this has been a such a um, uh, event-laden uh, period in history, um, 
did he keep did he keep notes do you, how 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 are you going to recreate these years well that's a great question especially because we lose access to all of our emails in about 10 hours um I, I don't know if he's been keeping maybe notes wikileaks right. can help you i don't know <laughs> maybe yeah. um you know i I've, I've saved the speeches obviously you know we've we've written 3577 in office so surely we have some stuff to draw from but i also told him you know, if I do this, I don't want it to be a book that goes, and then this happened, and then this happened. Chapter I can't 13. imagine that he'd write a book like that. No, and he, he said, he said absolutely not. You know, it's not going to be like Chapter 13, The Grand Bargain. Uh, he wants to do something interesting and innovative that no other former president has done. Yeah. How long do you think that project will take? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I just talked to him yesterday, and he said, I want you to take the next two weeks completely off. Do whatever it takes to clear your head. Uh, I don't care what it is. And then that's get, all it'll take, huh? Two weeks? Yeah, I said really. That's all. And uh, you know, when he gets back from vacation, we will get after it. You going away? I don't have any plans yet. Chris and I haven't had time to plan a vacation, but you know, the only thing on my radar right now is spring training and uh, the short series they're going to do in Vegas before the regular season. Yeah, well, come out to Arizona. I'll be there, man. You started here when you were twenty-eight, right? Twenty-six. 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 I was twenty-eight. All right, when I started in the White House, in the 26 White House, okay, on the You have had the biggest job there is in speechwriting. You've worked for a historically important president and a, and a great, great person. Um, and you're going to work with him on his book. But how do you top this? In other words, you know, I look at you young guys um, and uh, I'm thinking – it's a hell of an experience to have, you know, in your 20s and 30s. And do you worry at all about um, the future and sort of how you, how you find comparably satisfying experiences? Yes. I mean, <laughs> that's the short answer. I've been worried about that for years. I mean, this will probably be the most fulfilling, important thing I ever do career-wise. And I've been really worried about finding something with an equal sense of purpose to it. Um, you know, teaching, I think, is one of those things. I think I will ultimately like to go back to college and teach young people. Um, Always welcome at the Institute of Politics, by the way. Thanks, brother. Yeah. But, you know, lightning won't strike twice like this. So I bid sure to be grateful for it every single day. And then, you know, fortunately, I have a wonderful wife and friends around me. So I'm going to be all right. Uh, we're going to get a dog, which will help. Yes. But, highly uh, recommend that. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I still don't know. Well, you know, I should say this if it's any comfort, but, you know, there have been other comparable administrations. You know, the Kennedy administration back in 1960 was replete with these young people. I mean, Newton Minow, who was, became a mentor to President mm-hmm. Obama, was the 34-year-old chairman of the, uh, of the FCC back in, uh, in the Kennedy administration. And uh, I'm sure at that moment when Jack Kennedy died, many of them thought, I, you know, I'm not going to have this kind of experience again. Yeah, and you know what? I, I've been telling people mostly to help them through, you know, these past couple of months after the election. But the extraordinary things that this staff is going to go on to do, I mean, you will see and hear from us forever. And, you know, I've already got four friends running for office right now. And Rhodes and I have always joked that we're going to, you know, parachute in like a SWAT team to help people get elected. Um, you're going to hear from Obama people for a long, long time. We're going to do remarkable things. So what are you going to miss the most? 
You know, it's easy to say Air Force One and Marine One, but I'm going to miss the people here. You know, and not just our coworkers that we've we've been with the whole time, but I'm going to miss the Navy mess staff, who are extraordinary. I'm going to miss the uniformed Secret Service officers, who are wonderful. I'm going to miss the resident staff who stay on. You know, the ushers and because um, there are these extraordinary people that you get to see every day. You know, the 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 women who come in and take out the trash. Lawanda and Dory are the nicest people ever. I will miss all of them, you know, because they stay here and we don't get to come back through these gates. Yeah. Well, I will say that, uh, as I said earlier, one of the great gifts uh, for me uh, in these years that I was in the White House and during the campaign was to work with people like you. And one of the uh, one of the joys for me has been to see you guys grow up from kid speechwriters to uh, real forces and I know that you don't just um, write words for this president, but you reflect his values. And uh, that, is, um, that is a breathtakingly um, exciting thing to see. So thank you for that. Thank you. And, and you know, it's an extraordinary testament to him and to you guys is there are more staffers here who've stayed all eight years than in any other administration. You know, on my team, I can't yeah, actually. It is amazing to me. I'm a little older than you are, but I know, <clears throat> I know what the physical and emotional demands of working in this building are. It's a tremendous honor, mm-hmm. uh, but it is it is psychologically, emotionally, and particularly physically punishing. Mm-hmm. You look at my team alone: Ben Rhodes, Sarah Hurwitz, Tyler Lechtenberg, all from the original campaign, all still here. Terry Zuplat joined in 09, still here. I mean, people believe in him, and we believe in each other, and we've carried each other through this. And I imagine those are relationships you're going to keep uh, for the rest of your life. Forever. Cody, great to be with you, brother. Thanks, Axe. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.